0: Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, and I've got uh, three students with me today to talk about antipsychotic medications with a focus on some of our newer antipsychotic medications. Let's start with introductions, Michaela.
1: Hi, my name is Michaela Schweitzer-Hennin. I am currently a third year at Rocky Vista. I'm doing my psychiatry rotation here in Provo. I'm currently interested in oncology and potentially palliative care, so psychiatry, since it plays such a major role in that, I've been really excited and enjoying this rotation a ton. And
0: Elliot.
2: Um, Hi, I'm Elliot. I'm a third year student. um, I'm a classmate of Michaela and Wills. Um, rotating here at Utah State Hospital. I am interested in um, cardiology and pulmonary critical care uh, as of this moment, but my mind is still undecided. But like Michaela,
3: I'm enjoying my time here as well. And Will. So my name's Will Bernquin. I'm a third year medical student as well. And my current interests right now are peds, psych, and internal med but as Elliot said, it's much more of a uh, flavor of the month. I feel like everything that we see, we start to get drawn towards, so we will see.
0: Now, Will, I ask every student this, or increasingly ask students this, tell me how you came to this topic. Why why was this a topic that you picked?
3: Yeah, so I think we learn about antipsychotics in second year, and you start to get familiar with these drugs, and I think being on the floor and being on the unit, They're used so much more than I expected, and just the terminology, I didn't feel like I had, uh, I didn't know it as well as I wanted to, and I wanted to really deep dive into antipsychotics and specifically looking at those third gens, the partial agonists, and so now we're here.
0: So let's, um, I I think really to talk about antipsychotic, uh, antipsychotic medications. We have to kind of say, first of all, there are a couple of models of schizophrenia, right? There's a model that looks at uh, glutamate. If we give PCP to rats, we get a hyper uh, locomotion paradigm and you can address that with antipsychotic medications to slow down the movement. If you have a stimulant paradigm, you can give antipsychotic medications and and, uh, see a change in the way the uh, mice work. But that was a little bit different when they were first uh, developed and catalepsy, right? We were trying to see if we could paralyze rats. Uh, there are a couple of other, um, maybe neurotransmitter models, but those seem to be the two larger ones. Within that, the paradigm for the use of our antipsychotic uh, medications has revolved around four key tracks, right? Talk to me about those four key tracks.
3: Yeah, so to start, and I think if you're listening to this, if you're a second, third year medical student, you know about the mesolimbic tract. And so in the mesolimbic tract, if you have an increase in dopamine, that is when we see psychosis. And antipsychotics are made as dopamine antagonists, so we are decreasing the dopamine in the mesolimbic tract. I think that is the the number one thing to remember. That's why we came to these medications decreasing dopamine in the mesolimbic tract. And then you get the mesocortical tract. And as they started looking at the mesolimbic tract, they realized decreasing dopamine was good. But in the mesocortical tract, they realized that decreasing dopamine was actually being linked to negative symptoms, which we didn't want and then the nigrostriatal tract is normally when you have dopamine this is good for normal movements you know just every everyday movements that you and I were make were to make and decreases in dopamine in this tract causes extrapyramidal symptoms and the fourth tract that I'll talk about is the tuberoinfundibular tract and dopamine in this tract usually will inhibit prolactin and when you get this decrease in dopamine that dopamine antagonists have, it'll lead to an increase in prolactin. So we'll be referring to these four tracks throughout as more dopamine antagonists and more do- dopamine partial agonists. We'll all try and, try and hit the perfect level of, of dopamine in e- each of these. And, and as you'll hear, it's, it's, it's hard to do.
0: So, so just to be clear, if we are blocking dopamine, we're probably helping with positive symptoms. Probably worsening negative symptoms, potentially causing movement disorders like tardive dyskinesia, akathisia, dystonia, and potentially causing problems with prolactin elevation.
3: Exactly. Yeah, well, good. Much, much less words than I did. <laughs> much more eloquently put. But that is exactly what we're doing.
0: No I, uh, no, I think you have to go through the process to be able to talk about that, right? These four tracks and the side effects that arise out of these four tracks with the use of the medications now become, in a sense, the basis for everything we do. Now, I want to go back to France. I think we're in the 1950s. You read through the story of how antipsychotic medications came to be used in a sanatorium in France. you want to just relate that story briefly from your perspective?
3: Yeah, exactly. and I. I thought it was really interesting to read about how this came up because they were looking at promethazine, and they noticed that with promethazine there was a kind of a calm somnolence that was different from the effects of morphine, and they called this kind of their quote-unquote lytic cocktail. And a chemist named Paul Charpentier in the early 1950s kind of started making a little bit of changes and came to chloropromazine, and he noticed a the symptoms of a rigid body, rigid limbs, staying in the same position, body was slowing down and he was really interested in this and this was the formation of the first first generation antipsychotic. So this was in early 1950 in the early 1950s and then over the next 10 years they started playing with the structure just you know one one little bit at a time and came to the um, thioxazines and is it the phenothiazines as well. So just in that 10 years, there was a ton of growth in the first-generation
0: antipsychotics. So when I've read this story, I'm always amazed by it. Uh, these two uh, physicians, Dr. Laborete and Dr. Charpentier, were surgeons. And as I understand the story, they were trying to reduce post-surgical stru- shock, right? They were trying to be able to have surgery and not have negative outcomes afterwards. And the use of these cataleptic molecules helped have a calming influence. And and if I understand correctly, they said, hey, maybe this would work at the local sanatorium. Let's let's take it over to the local hospital. So they gave the nurses these instructions. They said, okay, it's gotta be like as if it were surgery. So you need to put these patients in an ice bath and you need to give them uh, the Thorazine, which was the medication that they had developed by that point and uh, you you should get some benefit. Well, the nurses promptly dumped the ice bath part of this, gave the patients the Thorazine, and the rest is history, right? And I've I've found this uh, story very, very compelling. Now, the other part of the story that I don't know that you were able to see is that the only reason we had these molecules that they were playing around with was because they stole some some, uh, trees out of uh, Peru (laughs) that are sort of like the uh, coffee tree. Uh, part of the Rubiaceae family and took them to Java where they were able to uh, synthesize methylene blue, which, if I understand correctly, was the root compound that became used Mm -hmm. for these uh, thioxanthines, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, at the same time, there was another guy, and there's two different stories on this, uh, Paul Janssen, whose family was involved in uh, developing opioids, decided that they needed to diversify their product. And I read one story that said that basically the Belgium cyclists were doping with amphetamines and getting psychotic, and he developed an antipsychotic for, for, his, or for the doping cyclists in, in uh, Belgium. I can't find a lot of data for that story, and then there's another story where he was, you know, like I said, experimenting on his neighbors with uh, the, uh, the haloperidol, uh, kind of root molecule and found that that was effective. And, and so we have all of these different threads that are coming together to create these first generation antipsychotics. And I think because they come from a couple of different roots, we even have different potency in these first generation antipsychotics, right? So early on we have low potency, mid potency and high potency antipsychotic medications. Tell me what you read about the relative potency of the medications. I don't think we see a lot about that anymore.
3: Yeah, and I think that as we've gone on to second gen and third gens, we, we try first gens, but it, they're not as talked about. And so with the high potency, you would have something like haloperidol. And these are going to cause, um, these are going to help positive symptoms well. So these are going to kind of calm down the hallucinations, the delusions, and the disorganized thought. But at the same time, the EPS symptoms, uh, if my understanding is correct, is that EPS symptoms are going to be more extreme.
0: And I think the low potency, I think, essentially were like, uh, it, still kind of like the high potency, but they didn't bind quite as tightly. You had to have higher doses of the same medication, so to speak. So they talked about chlorpromazine equivalents. And then these medications seem to come with built-in uh, anticholinergic activity so that maybe you had fewer kind of side effects that were being masked by the, the uh, cholinesterase, act- or not the cholinesterase activity, but the acetylcholine activity, right? Uh, so these these medications stick around for a while. And then uh, somebody starts noticing that the molecules that they're developing might be a little bit different, right? Tell me a little bit about the development of well, actually, before we do that, tell me about the shortcoming of these medications. Why do we keep looking for new drugs?
3: Yeah, and it was pretty quick after these first gens got going that they realized that there was a lot of movement disorders that were coming about. And this takes us back to the nigrostriatal pathway of dopamine, and we, as we were blocking dopamine, we weren't able to move like we used to. So this came with part of dyskinesia, which a lot of times we'll see with movements of the tongue movements of the body akathisia which is constant moving around um, which may not seem as terrible but when you think about it if if you can't sit still you can't sleep you're you're walking back and forth it's very very um, inconvenient i should
1: say
0: or or even worse than inconvenient i think there have even been some ties or some associations made to suicide because of how uncomfortable it is yeah
1: and i do just want to jump in and clarify for anyone listening who has not attended first or second year of medical school when we talk about positive and negative symptoms we're not referring to good and bad things Um, positive would mean it's the addition of a behavior or a body movement Um, so when we talk about these movement disorders that's normally what we're referring to and a negative symptom would be the lack of something so people lack affect which is the way we describe them interacting with the world or their mood so just to clarify that in case Um, you're not a medical student and that's what we're talking about when we talk about positive and negative symptoms.
0: Let let me change positive symptoms just a little bit I think rather than positive movements showing up we would talk about uh, the emergence of symptoms that aren't normally there like hallucinations, delusions, the feeling that people can read your thoughts, those kinds of things as well. Um, So first-generation medications helpful for positive symptoms um, I think you guys spent some time at the Utah State Hospital Museum. We, mm-hmm. I think uh, Janina talked about how th- these antipsychotic medications started to lead to the emptying of the state hospitals around the country. Very big changes, but clearly inadequate. So second-generation medications started to emerge. I think you and I both looked for how this happened. I, I saw some stuff that hinted, but nothing that really was clear. Yeah. Tell me what you saw.
3: So my, my research got me to clozapine as the first SGA that was really found. And early on in studies and trials, a lot of people died. A lot of people died from agranulocytosis. And it, in my understanding, they kind of put it on hold for a little bit while they did more research, while they started looking at other second gens. And it's, it's kind of funny because now clozapine is used a lot in a setting like like Utah State Hospital or state hospitals. But back then, it seemed like people didn't really want to touch it at the beginning
0: based on these side effects. Pretty scary, yeah. Yeah. Even yeah. when it was reintroduced much later, I think it was very scary for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, is the first, second-generation antipsychotic. And, and if I understand correctly, there were some... Uh, Chemists, researchers might be a better word, molecular biologists, I'm not entirely sure how to describe this. I think uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, uh, Herbert Meltzer, started looking at some of the unique characteristics of these medications and thought that perhaps a, a group of medications that not only bind just to dopamine but maybe also bind to the 5-HT2C receptor, if I got that
3: right?
0: 2A receptor, I got it wrong, good. So that also bind to the 5-HT2A receptor might help with this dopamine mismatch that was created by the first gens. Talk to me about how that works.
3: Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. So with first gens, it was only dopamine antagonists. And with these second gens, they added on, they said, you know, we can stop dopamine. How about we go to serotonin? So it's the 5-HT2A receptor. And they were hoping that they could address negative symptoms. Because as we talked, as Michaela talked about, negative symptoms are the flat affect, the kind of, uh, would you say dull? The withdrawn.
0: depression, withdrawn, lack of lack of motivation, lack of activity.
3: And, and first gens did not address these symptoms. The first gens were pretty good at, at looking at positive symptoms, the hallucinations, the delusions, but the negative symptoms weren't changing. So they were hoping that with 5-H2A antagonism added on to the dopamine antagonism, that maybe we would be able to address these negative symptoms and also hopefully we'd be able to address the side effects of the EPS, the movement disorders that that they were seeing. and and there's some there's some research on that if if we want to go into that
0: go ahead throw it throw it down yes. i think what you're going to say is that there's there appears to be a feedback mechanism and if we're binding antagonizing more specifically that 5HT2A receptor we're increasing the dopamine in those meso- mesocortical tracts
3: yes Exactly. I got that one right, at least. (laughs) You should be a doctor. He's good at this.
0: I should go back to medical school, probably. (laughs)
3: Um, And and one thing that I thought was interesting is that when we were taught last year, second years, and I think it's pretty common knowledge for students at least, that negative symptoms get better with second-generation antipsychotics. And I found in the research that it's not a hundred percent clear it, it may not actually be doing what it's supposed to and and it I found it interesting because the one drug that um, the study found that was that was better than placebo for negative symptoms was actually a drug that we don't even have in the United States and that's a missile pride so I I, I don't know it's it's interesting it was very interesting for me that you're taught one thing I think it's pretty a lot of people think that second gens are better at, ne- at addressing negative symptoms. When I'm not sure that's true.
0: So I'm sitting here stuttering because even some of the generalizations we make about first generation antipsychotics, some of our largest studies, like the Katie trial, which is the uh, the United States large naturalistic trial looking at the effectiveness of antipsychotic medications, or the UFAST, which is the European first episode. Uh, treatment of schizophrenia, right, these these trials kind of said, hey, maybe our first gents aren't as bad as we thought in terms of the movement disorders, um, but maybe our second-generation medications, the SGAs, are maybe a little worse than we thought, right? And so, so this is thrown out there. We looked at a couple, I think, of uh, uh, Meta-analysis, uh, Stefan Lucht did some of these with uh, some very famous names in psychiatry, like uh, John Kane. And I think at the end of the day, he said, listen, generally speaking, this test question that you learn about first-generation <laughs> antipsychotics being worse than second-generation antipsychotics for movement disorders, hold on to that. It looks like it's probably accurate, right? Yeah. And the difference is somewhere around, uh, what, uh, three times higher the rate of emergence of tardive dyskinesia mm-hmm. uh, in first-generation antipsychotics versus uh, second-generation antipsychotics. So somewhere around 2% versus 6%. That's a pretty significant difference when you have something as disfiguring as tardive dyskinesia Mm -hmm. can be. But the thing that I thought was interesting was, at least in one of the articles we looked at, with the rates that are generally this low for both groups of medications, maybe those other side effects of second-generation medications become more significant, maybe. And I think you're about to tell me the downside of these second-generation medications.
3: Yeah, and there are a lot, I would say. Obviously, they do a lot of good things, but there are adverse effects associated. And I would say the major one that they didn't have in first-gen are the metabolic issues. And I know um, in Elliot's podcast yesterday, we talked about cardiovascular disease with schizophrenia and a lot of that. Does have to do with these second-gen antipsychotics, and they—I think—as soon as these came up, you started seeing dyslipidemia, diabetes, obesity, increases in BMI. And Elliot, you can touch on this if you want, but I know in my in my research, there were so many possibilities as to why the, these metabolic issues were happening that you know you you could look at six, seven different articles and get six different six or seven <laughs> different things. And it it was uh, it made it hard on the researcher. Elliot, do yeah. you want to pop in there? Yeah, um, th-
2: I'm happy to. We talked about it a little bit yesterday, um, like Will had mentioned. But with the second gen, the big, the big issue um, as far as side effects go is the metabolic syndrome. And from the research that I um, had looked at, the consensus is that the 5H2C, Um, the H1 or histamine one, and then the muscarinic um, M3 receptor typically are um, the receptors that they feel are associated with weight gain in the second gen um, antipsychotics. And I think kind of like we hit on yesterday, you have to be cognizant of, you know, your risk and benefit. So yes the second generation antipsychotics have some risk of metabolic syndrome but if you're aware of that risk and you are aggressively screening patients before starting them on these medications and then aggressively um, managing them while they're on the antipsychotics you can manage the side effects of metabolic syndrome and still have the added benefit of treating their underlying disease so in schizophrenia in patients that have schizophrenia you want to you know, manage their hallucinations, their positive symptoms. um, And if you can find a way to hopefully blunt those um, negative symptoms, you want to do that. And the benefit of doing that greatly outweighs the risk of metabolic syndrome, I think is what we've come to to the conclusion of as a society.
1: And if you want to hear more about that, I know of a great podcast.
3: (laughs) 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 Thank you for that, Elliot. Um, And then just adding to that, in terms of side effects, the the big one, the testable one, ears perk up, agranulocytosis with, with clozapine is, is big. You have falls associated with orthostatic hypotension. You'll also
0: see that with first gen, so I don't know that that separates okay, okay. the two quite as well as, as agran does. Okay. And then keep going, though.
3: Uh, and then I just wrote here with uh, myocarditis, back to the heart, and QT prolongation, which... Is that, is that both first and second gens?
0: So, I'd say myocarditis is mostly associated with clozapine, that's, that's okay. the kind of thing you'll see in the boxed warning with clozapine. Seizures you'll see in the boxed warning with clozapine, but it does seem to show up with most of the antipsychotic medications depending on the dose. Uh, QT prolongation is a little bit more complicated study our issue and I'm hoping we have a podcast on that at some point. This was the sticking point uh, the first three antipsychotic medications that were approved that were second generation. Were quetiapine, uh, excluding clozapine, quetiapine, olanzapine, and risperidone, and those three medications do have the weight gain liability. Um, Ziprasidone, if I recall correctly, was the next medication in the list to emerge, and there was clearly a weight difference between this medication, the three uh, prior that I just mentioned, and so the the advertising or the marketing was this is an the counter marketing I should say from the other uh, the other pharmaceutical companies, from my perspective, was this is a dangerous medication because of QT prolongation. You don't want to give that uh, medication. So QT interval prolongation came more into the lexicon in psychiatry. And again, I think this speaks to the nuances between these medications as a whole, even though we have first-generation antipsychotics, which are uh, low-potency, mid-potency, and high-potency. We have second-generation antipsychotic medications. Um, which are this hodgepodge of of molecules. And then we even have what you're referring to as third generation antipsychotic medications or partial antagonists. And they're all very different. They all have relatively different binding profiles at the D2 receptor, let alone at a myriad of other receptors. And so um, I think with second generation antipsychotics, things to remember are things like risperidone is closely associated with
2: Hyperprolactinemia. Hyperprolactinemia. That's going to be the test question. (laughs) That is going to be the test
0: question, right? You might see a test question about uh, quetiapine and somnolence. You might see a test question about um, clozapine and the risks of agranulocytosis or the management of that or when you would use it, or when you would stop that, or the risk of agranulocytosis, things along those lines. So, so these molecules are, I think, different enough that mostly the test questions have focused on how do they really stand out from the rest of the crowd. But they also seem to be focused on how do they seem to act as a group. And even though there are uh, second generation antipsychotic medications that don't seem to cause the same amount of weight gain as the early members of the group, that is the, the class, you know, kind of thinking, right? Your test questions are still generally going to revolve around class problems of weight gain. Mm-hmm. That's my take.
3: Yeah, and, and I agree. And I found it, it, it was really interesting to research just the questions that still remain with the metabolic issues. I, thought, I, I think that it leads a lot of future answers that, that we're going to get hopefully in our, in our lifetime that can help better. These drugs, um, but do you think it's time for our third gens? Are you? Yeah, I see you. You're,
0: you're looking I'm, jittery I'm, I'm over like, there. I'm jittery. I'm I'm ready to. He's actually this doing out.
1: push-ups at this moment. He's and the so Rocky excited. Song is going on <laughs> in his headphones.
2: I think.
3: Uh, he's ready to go. Yeah. So we know that this is why you're here. So we're we this is why we're all listening right now. Thank you again for listening. But so we're gonna go move on to the third generation antipsychotics. And there's little bit of discrepancy in how these are referred to all over the place because a lot of these initially until to this day are referred to as second generation antipsychotics but they work with a different mechanism so we call these partial agonists and there are three of them so there's aripriprazole which you may know as Abilify there's Brexpriprazole aka Rexalti and the third one is Cariprazine which is Vralar. Does that sound right? Close enough. Getting there, getting there. Um
0: And... De- depending on where you are, every drug name sounds a little bit different. So if you have... Uh, I remember we had attendings from the South, and the names are just a little bit changed. Dogs from the Northeast, names are different. I think these have regional regional inflection points. in the, Yeah, in I
3: the think... Native. You know, I, it, it passes somewhere. It's, it's all there that you matters. Are. So... These are partial agonists at the dopamine receptors D2 and D3, as well as partial agonists at the serotonin receptor 5-HT1A. And along with partial agonism, they are antagonists at 5-HT2A. And so as we'll go through these, each of these, we'll do those four general things, but the affinities will be a little bit different. And we, we may touch on that. It's kind of tedious to look at which one acts on what a little more but basically as a partial agonist the point is that at a low level of dopamine it will increase the amount and at high levels of dopamine around it will decrease the amount so they're hoping that with the mesolimbic and mesocortical symptom or tracts that we're going to get to this perfect way of treating positive and negative symptoms that's that's the hope that's the idea behind partial agonism
0: So I want to go back and just repeat that again. Our first generation of antipsychotic medications were largely treating positive symptoms only by banging away at that dopamine 2 receptor. That's it. Then we tried to get increased dopamine in the mesocortical areas by adding that 5-HT2A antagonism to get feedback and increased dopamine. And the results were somewhat mixed, I would say. Uh, There are some data that perhaps it helps with negative symptoms, and I think perhaps, at times, some uh, evidence that different molecules in different ways helped with cognitive symptoms. Um, But it was very incomplete. So now the idea is, if in schizophrenia, the mesocortical pathways are hot, so to speak, overactive, I'm sorry, the mesolimbic pathways are hot and overactive, so to speak, and the mesocortical pathways are cold, normally, before medications, right, hypoactive, and the other pathways are usually not as affected in schizophrenia, right, the tubero and and the uh, nigrostriatal pathways, then the idea is that we can throw in a dopamine agonist where the behavior is insufficient, there's insufficient dopamine, and a an antagonist where the pathways are too active. In other words, a molecule that is a partial agonist can hit the sweet spot, lift up dopamine activity in some areas and reduce dopamine activity in other areas. Did I get it close?
3: 100%. And they they call these in a lot of the articles dopamine stabilizers. And I think that that's a great way to think about it. I probably should have started with that, honestly. But just to kind of if one's if one's cold and one's hot, we want to bring both of those in the middle. We want to stabilize the amount of dopamine. And before we start talking about the specific drugs, I think just to get it out of the way, they all do have the same black box warning. So they all have two, and it's suicidality with antidepressants and uh, mortality in elderly patients with dementia-related psychosis. So I think well, that that's worth mentioning.
0: Got to mention it, right? Any boxed warning has to be mentioned. The reason why these medications have the boxed warning for suicide is because all medications that have FDA indications for treatment of depression carry that. Okay. So in a sense they are labeled as antidepressants. I think in the case of uh, aripiprazole and brexpiprazole, these are medications that have FDA indications for augmentation of treatment of depression with SSRIs or other antidepressants, right? And in the case of cariprazine, It doesn't have that additional indication, but it does have the indication for treatment of bipolar disorder. I think both depressed state and manic state, right? So some medications get the FDA approval for mania, some for uh, bipolar depression, and I think this has both. And anytime you have any sort of antidepressant FDA approval, you get the box warning. But I'm not clear that there's data on that in this situation for either of those. Okay. And I think that's similar with the data that we talked about with cardiovascular risk yesterday, mm-hmm. where the strokes seem to be not just a problem maybe in dementia, but perhaps across the board, right?
2: Yeah. And I think that was what the FDA, like, that was like a recent expansion on that black box warning, was just for all antipsychotics, they added a class warning for the cerebrovascular accidents. I didn't um, know that. In the elderly. Yes.
0: Oh, the, the elderly one has been around for quite a or while. Or
2: not in the elderly, but across... It was just... I think it was 2018 was what I saw when they added it. It was um, across all classes. It just expanded to all of the... All of the uh, classes with cerebral Yep. All professors. the classes, yep. And then one of the studies that I looked up when I was looking up research for my podcast was... Um, kind of like it has been alluded to, was they don't know why the specification with the elderly because they have seen some indication that it can happen regardless of regardless age. Regardless of age,
0: yeah. All right, so the so the boxed warnings you've mentioned, we are not, at least amongst us, we're not aware of specific studies that say these medications cause this. We believe these are boxed warnings that are class-related.
3: Yep, exactly. Class-related box warning. Um, and then first one, and I think the Hot topic is Abilify, so all And along with being a partial agonist at D2 and 5-HT1A, it's an antagonist at Alpha 1, H1, uh, 5-HT2A. So it works on a lot. And there's a lot of research regarding Abilify and how it does. And a lot of it, I think, is still being questioned. But I, I did find some research from Dr. Gurgis Blake that said that it was slightly less effective than treating schizophrenia than olanzapine, but it was also better at the, uh, it was a lower risk of weight gain compared to those second generation medications. So from my understanding, it seems like it may not be as good at treating schizophrenia and the positive symptoms, but a lot of the side effects, if you're adding it on, it may help the side effects. So there were similar, there's a similar risk of EPS symptoms as second-gen, so it doesn't have the increased risk like first-gens. Um, in, in so, go ahead.
0: So there's actually a pretty high rate of akathisia with... With aeropi- akathisia, okay. aeropi- but I think outside of that we don't see those kinds of problems, right? We don't see yeah. that. The tardive dyskinesia rate seems to be similar to the other uh, second generation antipsychotic medications. That's what I think I understood.
3: Yeah, that, no, no, that's that's exactly what I what I saw as well. And if I can, I'm just going to jump in with a
2: shelf pearl um, for a question that I've seen um, just relating to um, akathisia and which drug is most likely to cause akathisia. And if you're presented with that question on the shelf, then it is going to be the result, um Is the antipsychotic that's most likely to have that side effect?
0: Which is very interesting because it, it doesn't seem to fit within that normalization of the dopamine pathways, right? Or the, mm-hmm. the stabilization of the dopamine pathway. So it's kind of one of those things that until we understand the mechanism a- of action better and why it's doing that, it's, it doesn't fit what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So you gotta remember it.
2: Well, and I think like Dr. Randy, that was something you'd mentioned the other day um, in talking specifically about preparing for this podcast was with our antipsychotic medications, we're hopeful that they will do X, Y, and Z. Um, but that's not necessarily what always happens, and so we're we're optimistic, and that's one of the reasons we always have to trial different patients on different drugs, is because they respond differently.
0: Yeah, that's true. So, so I think the point you're making, Will, is this medication. So I, I think I think you're alluding to this. This medication had a lot of studies out there. Yes. Right. This is a medication that breaks away from. Generally speaking, most of the problems of the first generation antipsychotics and most of the problems of the second generation antipsychotics. And really the only uh, really huge problem for this medication is akathisia is fairly common. And that is the test answer, right? Mm -hmm. once Once you get away from akathisia, if you have a patient that doesn't have that, this is a medication that's probably not going to cause weight gain, probably going to help with the voices, the positive symptoms, and probably not going to worsen any negative symptoms and perhaps I'm not sure we saw data for this, but perhaps improve uh, negative symptoms. The other thing that I think I saw a lot of within the research, and I think this seems to be well validated, I think there were meta-analysis on this, it looks like this is a medication that you can add to medications and expect that hyperprolactinemia will resolve, right? There's a lot of data on this medication not causing hyperprolactinemia or normalizing hyperprolactinemia. And then I think there uh, is a lot of data out there trying to prove that, hey, this medication belongs with the big boys. Yeah. So even if you add it on, we're not decompensating. Our patients aren't getting worse. I'm not sure that's what I see consistently. I see patients who have had Abilify or Arpiprazole added on. They seem to decompensate. They come here. We take it away. They seem to do better again, right? But that's, I think... The rare exception.
3: Yeah, and it. In, and I just want to reiterate that in those meta analyses, the addition of eriprazol to clozapine did reduce negative symptoms, reduce prolactinemia. There was less weight gain, so I, I think it is definitely a viable option to at least try. And there's, you know, if if someone's listening and and there's a question about whether. You're on clozapine and not, you're not, I, I think the exact wordage was if you have slight response to clozapine but want a little bit more, need a little oomph, it sounds like the addition of Abilify could be worth it.
0: Yeah, and I didn't I didn't see the additional reduction in psychosis. I saw the make clozapine be more tolerable kinds yeah,
3: of articles. Okay. Um, and then I think if you're listening at home, you hear Abilify and you think, I've heard this before. Where, where <laughs> if I, and I may have heard this about 10,000 times watching NFL Sunday. Michaela, do you want to tell us a little bit about why we know so much about Abilify?
1: Yeah, somebody might have to end up shushing me because this could go on for a while. I have a lot to say here. I got Um, my popcorn ready. Abilify is definitely a landmark drug, and I don't just say that because of its mechanism, but there's a lot of controversy surrounding its advertising. So one big thing to note up front is that the direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceuticals that we see in America actually only occurs here and in New Zealand, and there is pushback Mm -hmm. in both places about it. But I just think that's important to mention. We don't really see this type of advertising um, of specific drugs for specific diseases in other places so that already is unique but um, the drug really did saturate the natural the national market I mean just from I'll give you an example of a year October 2013 to September 2014 there are over seven billion dollars in sales just of Abilify so that's kind of the frame of reference of why we care about this why is this interesting so uh, Billify received FDA approval in 2002, um, Will may have mentioned that, um, Otsuka Pharmaceuticals in Japan. So it was FDA approved originally just for schizophrenia. So started seeing ads coming out um, and they. what was interesting is it's it kind of targeted women. So daytime television, People magazine, Women's Health magazine, that's where you were seeing a lot of these ads. That's maybe where some we've heard them or seen them. Um, and a psychiatrist Julie Holland wrote in an article in 2015 that one in four women take psych- psychiatric medications compared to one in seven men so that may have been part of why the targeting was there um, it just was to broaden um, their profit margins um, and the most common ad that people saw on TV and in print was a woman being chased by a bathrobe um, that was kind of dark and it said um, that this medication may be able to decrease symptoms of depression now, Um, the advertising stated in video that the activity of key brain chemicals is too high, Abilify can lower it. When activity is too low, Abilify can raise it. So it kind of explained it like it was a thermostat. And Will touched on that initially when we discussed mechanism. Um, But this, you know, the FDA actually lists the mechanism of the drug as unknown. It suggests that that is what is occurring, but it still is technically listed as unknown. So there is there was concern at the time that this maybe overly simplified portrayal or you know, explaining this drug as being very cut and dry in mechanism could potentially be misleading. So there, there were some issues with that up front. Um, and then the other thing was that although it was initially only approved by the FDA for schizophrenia, which later broadened um, for depression and for bipolar. Um, It was advertised for those things prior to the FDA approval, so I think that's also something worth noting. uh, Because although physicians can prescribe drugs for off-label uses, drug companies actually aren't allowed to push them to do that or advertise it for that. So physicians have the capacity to do that, but the drug company, um, according to the FDA standards, should not be doing that. So not just were we seeing advertising to patients, but there were a lot of problems with um, the company advertising to physicians, so the people with prescribing power. So There was a lot of um, advertising, and that may potentially have been to sort of dull physicians to potentially suspicious claims of the action. Um, so some of the ads or some of the claims made by drug reps were that there were nearly non-existent extrapyramidal symptoms. and that may or may not have been true, further research says that there were more side effects than originally advertised. Um, in addition, one of the other problems was that child psychiatrists were a major target for Abilify reps in the years leading up to a drug that was actually indicated for children. So that wasn't until October 2007 that we saw that. So in that those five years between Abilify coming out and then a drug specifically for children, although there was no FDA approval for children, there was a big push. and it, The company really struggled to get drug reps to take child psychiatrists off of their list of people to call all the time. So that was another problem that came up, and, and there were some legal problems there, because it was dangerous to be prescribed for children and the elderly, as well mentioned, um, when we talk about black box warnings. So, um, just a lot of tricky stuff going on, in this intersection between advertising and medicine, um, it's just a really unique thing to look into, and I just found a ton of information on it. One of the articles I do want to mention is um, by Nicholas Rosenlicht, who works for UCSF. He said that even with... What seemed like a scarcity of research on the side effects of the drugs long term, the later data really showed that there were far more side effects than we previously thought. Um, and so it's just something to keep in mind when you see this massive push of advertising. Okay, let's take a step back and think what's really going on. Because so in 2007, a study of Abilify as a treatment for bipolar showed that 35% of participants developed akathisia, which we talked about was that inner restlessness that can be really deleterious to your quality of life. 35% is a very significant number. So I just think it's really important to consider these things um, when we look at the way drugs are advertised in the same way that we, you know, advertise clothing and car companies.
0: Michaela, I'm going to ask you a question. What is the medication sertraline? What is its brand name?
1: Oh, sertraline is uh, All
0: right, let me ask you another question. About Hold it. on, no googling. No googling. <laughs> <laughs> okay so Elliot's saying it's symbolic. I have people whistling in my ear that yeah.
1: it's Zoloft. It's Zoloft, <laughs> right.
0: And uh, what is c- escitalopram? That
1: is Lexapro.
0: What is um, paroxetine? Silence. What is aripiprazole? I mean, I can go on and on like this, right? I can. Most of my medical students who arrive here on this rotation don't know the the brand names of most medications and yet it's very common for my medical students to know the brand name Abilify mm-hmm. for aripiprazole, right? And I, I find that to be rather amazing and appreciate that you kind of took a look at this advertising. I think there is a lot of advertising going on for pharmaceuticals. Whether it's right or not, I don't know. What we do need to be aware of is what people are saying and how that might inform our decisions and how that might lead to patients who are pushing for treatment uh, as uh, that is an option, right, for the treatment of their difficult-to-treat depression. Very interesting. Let's talk about brexpiprazole. And what's the other name for brexpiprazole again? Rexulti. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I feel looking. like I'm being tested. <laughs> <laughs> the pressure's on. Yeah. So uh, now you put the podcast together. Will did you know that Rexulti was brexpiprazole before you started diving into these?
3: I would say I learned this. 30 hours ago
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Maybe i don't reveal <laughs> that much information so i would
3: say i was doing research and eventually i i saw this this word and i'm like i don't know what what this is and then eventually i put the two together thought i was an idiot you know slapped my head a few times and then now i know i know and i'll never forget it but uh so bell rick Partial agonist at D2 and 5-HT1A, as as the others are, but there's actually a little bit of a stronger affinity to the HT1A receptor than the other two partial agonists. Um, and then, I don't want to bore everybody, so I'll just I'll just uh, talk about some of the comparison adverse events with the two other partial agonists. And it seems to cause this was very interesting in the meta-analysis I looked at because it said that it had less insomnia than the other two, but a higher rate of increased weight. And they're thinking that it had a stronger affinity to the H1, but I, th- I think that the authors were a little bit confused as to how you would have less insomnia, but also increased weight, which is kind of not what you would think with H1. And is there anything you want to add about Rexulte? Any Any
0: clinical notes? I think it's like all of the other antipsychotic medications. My best guess is that if somebody has had a trial of aripiprazole and it has not worked, it's reasonable to try another partial antagonist as opposed to going to a second generation Mm -hmm. or a first generation medication. All of those choices after a couple of trials are equally as reasonable, right? Just because somebody has not had success with a second generation antipsychotic medication doesn't mean we stop using those, right? So, so I, th- I think, remember these are all very different molecules even though there are some general principles. And so the general principle is partial agonism, stabilization of the hypoactive uh, mesocortical pathways. Uh, I, <sighs> reduction of the hyperactivity of the mesolimbic pathways right same principle there but somewhat different binding on the receptors and that matters
3: yeah exactly so the affinity each one of these has a slightly different affinity for the h1 for the m1 for the alpha one for some of the random maybe not random to them but the random serotonin receptors so that's how these are all differing just a little bit and and there's a nice chart if if anyone's interested that has all of these binding affinities, but I didn't think that that would be um, too fun to talk about for. It, for it's not the minutes.
0: most compelling uh, story uh, for a podcast. No, exactly. it's well that, no. that's why
3: we have Michaela here because she's uh, she, she turns it into a good story. So so thank you, Michaela.
0: So I think we can almost say exactly the same thing about cariprazine, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, with with the nuance that. This does have some FDA approvals that I think the other molecules don't have. Is that correct? This has both the bipolar uh, depression and bipolar mania FDA approval, plus the schizophrenia approval, treatment for schizophrenia approval, um, which is slightly different. So maybe it has something slightly different than mood compared to the other two molecules. And I think the other key part about this molecule is, or the test question that eventually is going to arise is, uh, this warning in the in the labeling which is emergence of late onset side effects right I don't know that I said that uh, warning quite correctly. Talk to us about why that might be the case.
3: So I noticed in my research that it was the lowest antagonism of alpha 1 and that that was interesting that was the the one thing that stood out to me and then there was a lower rate of, fatigue, compared to the other two. Um, EPS symptoms were a little bit unclear in the meta-analysis that I saw. Can Um, I ask what EPS is? I forgot. You did. Uh, (laughs) They're extrapyramidal symptoms. Thank you. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you, Elliot.
0: (laughs) That sounds like you're going to be a great attendant. (laughs)
3: And, so, and the last thing with Vraylar was a stronger affinity to the D3. So it's a stronger partial agonist to D3 than the other two were. Um, so I think that, that that's worth noting as well.
0: So my question to you was about why are there delayed side effect onset uh, issues with this medication? And I think we talked about this before. But you've, you know, I I think you've read one or two hundred articles since that time. (laughs) And I think it has something to do with decryprazine, so the first metabolite of caryprazine, and then decryprazine breaks down into dd-caryprazine. Sometimes you'll hear dcar and ddcar when you're talking to the pharmaceutical reps that detail this drug, right? And each of these molecules has, uh, I think, the cariprazine molecule has a two to four day half-life, which makes it both shorter and longer half-life than the Mm 70-ish hours of of both bricspiprazole and eripiprazole. All three of these have fairly long half-lives, but because this decariprazine metabolite has a one to seven day half-life and is uh, felt to be bioequivalent, right? And the DD cariprazine has also, I think, one to three day, but I don't don't hold me to that now. So, so you have these three metabolites and you have somewhere around three to four week half-life with all of the molecules kind of crunched together. Again, I don't know how that works.
3: Above my pay grade. But <laughs> Above my pay grade.
0: I've tried to read the studies on this a couple of times and make sense of it. I think the take-home is if you have bioequivalent mar- molecules that are building up in the blood over time you may find late onset side effects, okay. and so I think that's the question that's going to emerge eventually. So the question that is uh, abilify's question is uh, akathisia. The question that's going to be uh, uh, sorry Car- Car- cariprazine's question is delayed onset of side onset.
3: effects. Okay, thanks for pointing that out. That's I, I came across that I didn't I didn't write it down, but I think that that a hundred percent question here is. We'll need to know that.
0: Not this year. Probably not next year, but maybe in eight or ten years, that will right. be the question. Class of
3: 2032. Class are you of listening? 2032.
0: Make
1: sure you're listening.
0: Yeah, when all of these drugs are irrelevant because of some really cool breakthrough. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what have we not talked about up to this point?
3: So the only other thing, and this is, this is way above my pay grade, but I, I came across an article that wasn't sold on partial agonism. Mm-hmm. It said, you know what, partial agonism to me doesn't make complete sense. And they threw out the idea of functional selectivity within the dopamine receptor. And I'm not a biochemist that I read it, and I, I read it about 35 times. But from my understanding is that functional selectivity means that once a ligand binds, it can go through multiple different pathways. So the idea with partial agonism is it depends on how much is around. So if you have a high amount of dopamine, then it'll decrease it. And if you have a low amount of dopamine, it'll increase it. So that's kind of dependent on what's around. Whereas functional selectivity would be more so that if it binds to dopamine, it can go through multiple pathways within that receptor. So that, that was one I... I didn't write the name down of the author, but he was not sold on partial agonism. I think that that's worth mentioning. He he stated that he thought that functional selectivity should be more researched, and that could be something that we see in our lifetime.
0: I think that was the Melman and Murthy article: third-generation right. receptor or partial agonism. Exactly, that's something right. along those lines. And I, I also read through that. Uh, the ideas, uh, the functionality of the receptor. But there were also some other things that were written in the Meltzer article, which was the role of uh, serotonin in the antipsychotic medications, right? And and it spent a great deal of time talking about not only the 2A receptor, but the 1A activity and how that's really been kind of inconsistent in the results of what happens if you either antagonize that or agonize that, right? But I think The part of it that I didn't understand, and and perhaps this is what you're referring to, is it seems like there might be some D2 uh, coupling differences. So you might have a D2 receptor, depending on where it is, that might be a G and we're rectifying potassium channel, and then you might have a D2 coupled uh, receptor that is a CAMP, uh, cyclic AMP, D2 receptor. But that doesn't make any sense to me. I thought they would label it as a different kind of receptor. So, yeah. so questions for a future podcast.
3: Potentially. Yeah, you you would think and functional selectivity and in, exe- in itself just that it sounds like maybe that that's exactly what they're talking about. Kind of it binds to a D two receptor, but we don't know what that next step is going to be because they're different. I think that it's worth you know revisiting class of twenty thirty two. Maybe they can uh, tackle that, but for now. I think that um, I'm happy labeling them partial agonists. Let's just say that. <laughs> I,
0: think I, I think the other thing that uh, along those lines is it doesn't make any sense necessarily that uh, risperidone would uniquely cause more problems in the D2 receptors in the tuberoinfandibular tract based just on binding alone. So there has to be some sort of differential uh, kinds of bindings, binding. So I think the idea that this guy talks about functional versus... Selectivity might might have something. Mm-hmm. We'll see where it goes. Uh, anything else, Will, that we haven't addressed? I'm
3: happy with that, unless Michaela or Elliot have anything else to add. I feel like we've we've done a just a spectacular job at covering <laughs> first, second, and third generations, and hope hopefully we enlighten some of the people listening. But if if you guys don't have anything to add, we can throw it back to you.
2: I will just add one or two more test or shelf question pearls just um, saving you know those questions for the end of the podcast so that you have to listen intently throughout to get to those pearls Um, for clozapine so we had hit on or will had hit on um, that agranulocytosis is the thing that's going to typically uh, be tested and they might ask um, about what a, like where agranulocytosis is defined or what you need to do prior to starting someone on um, clozapine. And you're gonna need to get a CBC to with differential to look for their neutrophil absolute neutrophil count and it needs to be greater than 1500 um, before you start them on that medication. And there is also something that I didn't know about till we started this rotation and I don't know if it'll come up on a test but it's called benign ethnic neutropenia. And that is some ethnicities, they just naturally have a lower absolute neutrophil count. And so you should be aware of that. And that shouldn't necessarily um, deter you from starting Clozapine. And in the article that I looked up, it was on um, John Hopkins um, medication like app. And it was talking about Clozapine. And it said, in the setting of benign ethnic neutropenia, you have to have an ANC or absolute neutrophil count of at least 1,000 um, to start that medication. And if the absolute neutrophil count then falls and is less than 500, then you need to stop that medication immediately because the risk of infection is um, immense at that point. Uh, the other thing, as far as test questions go, and I think we'd hit on it a little bit, was that um, second generations, as a class, they're gonna cause weight gain and lipid abnormalities. Um, and if you're asked about what the benefit compared to the first generation antipsychotics is, it's just that they have that lower risk of EPS or extrapyramidal symptoms.
0: Particularly TD, I think, is the one you're yep. gonna focus on.
2: Yep. And then, I think that was it. The only other interesting thing that I had looked up, and I don't know if we talked about, it, was a Um And that's just a sublingual. Uh, It has a sublingual option, which I thought was interesting. Cool. And it's a second-generation antipsychotic.
1: I mean, if there's anything I've learned in med school, it's that when in doubt, you're supposed to order a CBC. So I'm glad that the questions Elliot gave to us, that coincides with that information that I picked up.
2: Finally, a CBC is useful. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: know. Oh, these guys. All right. How many more days do I have with you three?
1: Not enough. Not enough. I do think you want to
2: request that we come back again and again
3: and again. <laughs> yeah, do you want to say anything else about how great we are? Oh, you going to talk us up a little bit? These
0: are the three best students I've ever worked oh, with. Oh, there we go. Ever, okay. ever, ever. Do you hear that, Mom? No, I'm just and, uh, <laughs> and the the only group that could possibly be better is if we had Scott and Max <laughs> here and all five of you that we are here at the Utah that. State Hospital this, uh, this month. Uh, final take home. Michaela, anything that you would uh, say as a final take-home?
1: I think the big take-home with this is... Because in America we have this intersection of ethics and advertising and medicine. It's just really important as a physician to be well read on what's going on. As a patient, to do your reading, and then when you're meeting with your patients as a physician, to have really good conversation. Take time to discuss things that your patients bring up so that you're both on the same page. I just think that's really important, and it probably seems like a given, but when you're in you know short appointment times or you're behind or things are going on, just make sure that you're taking the time to talk with your patient, hear what they're thinking and um, give them your perspective. But again, open-ended questions, things like that, it's just really important as a physician. And it's easy to also lose sight of that.
0: I like that. I think think a lot of times when we ask, tell me about how you came to the decision to use eripiprazole, help me understand that a little bit. Oh, well, I still have bad depression and this could help that's a great starting point right that that rather than get defensive that tv's prescribing figure out what the problem is figure out you know what the patient knows have options provided so that informed consent and a collaborative process can go forward i'm not entirely sure advertising is good or bad i think how we respond to it is very important since it might be out of our control whether that should or shouldn't be stopped right
1: yeah so I think like you just said meeting your patient where they are and moving forward from there is just so important so
0: like that Elliot
2: Um, I don't think I can add anything to that that was uh, very well said I think um, the thing that I also took away from this was uh, just from a medical student standpoint is that there are lots of different treatment options and being well-versed in, you know, the pros of using a certain medication and then the adverse effects of that medication, being able to weigh those and then engage in kind of, um, like we just heard about, shared decision-making with your patient effectively is really important and I think that as a first or second year student it's really easy to go through sketchy and learn about those high-yield drugs or supposedly high-yield drugs I guess for step one, but um, that's just the tip of the iceberg as far as when it comes to real-life medicine, I feel like. And just being willing and able to um, you know, effectively research these drugs and kind of dive in so that you can engage in that shared decision-making is important.
0: Well, I really like that. I think I would only add one thing, and that is that uh, most students, I think, come to their early rotations with the idea that a drug works and it causes side effects Or maybe the side effects are imagined by the patient. And the reality is quite different, I think. Sometimes our medications work and they have potentially uh, side effects. And those side effects may or may not show up in every patient or some patients or whatever the case is, but they'll eventually show up and you'll be burned by them if you don't talk about them. So uh, the potential benefits and potential risks is the only thing I would add to that. And I like that very, very much, Will. I'm sorry, Elliot. Elliot. Have I mentioned that I'm terrible with names?
2: It's okay. I am, too. So once I leave this
3: rotation, I'll just remember your faces. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's rude. We've been classmates with with Elliot for two years, and I don't think we're getting... He forgets my name sometimes, too. Uh,
0: I apologize, Elliot. (laughs) Will, take home from you.
3: Piggybacking off of what you said, schizophrenia, and just in my three weeks here so far, schizophrenia is a very hard disease to treat. And we've had, we're getting more and more options and generations. And that's because the previous ones have their shortcomings. And I think that, you know, as a provider, like you said, these side effects are going to happen and to not be afraid to try other drugs. And for me, a lot of it is the excitement for the future to find new generations of drugs, to find what uh, things that they're gonna tweak to just keep improving because all these drugs have side effects and it's it's hard to see and um, some of them also don't help the positive symptoms that well. And it's just a, a really hard disease to treat and I think that that's my biggest takeaway and I'm excited to see what the future holds to hopefully um, improve the lives of these uh, patients that have schizophrenia in the future.
0: I like that a lot. I think my take home, uh builds on the two podcasts, the one yesterday and the one today, and that is that the understanding of how these medications are working in the body is, it, it's, it feels like we're not even fully understanding how they work, right? I think we've talked about 5-HT2 receptors and weight. We've talked about 5-HT2A receptors and uh, increasing dopamine through the mesocortical tracts. We've talked about 5-HT1A receptors. We've talked about, well, we didn't talk about 5-HT3, but we've talked about dopamine two and dopamine three, and that doesn't even talk about how uh, there was some understanding early on that dopamine uh, th- that dopamine activity of clozapine seemed to be different than the dopamine activity of some of the other first-generation antipsychotics, right? They're starting to see that, the, the binding of that dopamine receptor to, uh, downstream effect, whether it was cyclic AMP or uh, GRK or whatever the case might be, there were differences in these things that they started to elucidate. And there are so many differences and so many different uh, neuropeptides, neurochemicals um, throughout the entire body that seem to be potentially affected by these molecules. I, I think we're just, I think I think there's a part of the, the study with these molecules that is taking us to new places in our understanding of the body. And at the same time, it still feels like these medications are mostly me too medications, right? They really haven't changed the paradigm. We're still talking about some reduction in in some positive symptoms, maybe impacting negative symptoms less. We're so far away from having the kinds of treatments we really want with schizophrenia. I'm hoping that we make these huge jumps, that, that all the little things that are nuanced understandings of these drugs lead us to better solutions fewer side effects, um, better lives for our patients. That's that's kind of my take home and complicated stuff beyond the scope of what our first and second year rotations should be, but I think maybe sets the ground for how we think about all of medicine, right? We're, we're starting to have a better understanding of all of these kinds of things and hopefully through our lifetime of medicine, I'm hoping I have another 10 to 15 years and your lifetime of medicine, I hope you guys have another 30 years or so, we see better treatments in all areas of medicine, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my take home. Uh, very well done, guys. We have a podcast coming up in a couple of days on electroconvulsive therapy. Undoubtedly will be one of the more controversial topics that we have in uh, in the podcast list. And I'm kind of looking forward to how, uh, Michaela, you and Max tackle that. That'll be a lot of fun. On that note, let's see if we can do this in unison this time, team out. <laughs> Team out. out. Team out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>